This is Gil Mance, welcoming you to Word by Word Conversations with writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's guests have written novels set in distinctive times and places. As he did in his first detective novel, Kiss of Salvation, Waits Taylor takes us back to 1948 in the segregated Birmingham, Alabama worlds of detective partners Joe McGrath and Sam Rucker in Touch of Redemption. Well, Charles Markey's novel of magical realism, Maria's Beads, features a Latino lettuce-packing family living in a present-day Salinas, California. Waits and Charles, I want to thank you for visiting us on Word by Word. Nice to be here. Thank you. Glad to be here, Gil. I think it will interest our listeners to discover that both of you had successful careers before becoming full-time writers. Charles, you were in Silicon Valley computer industry, and Waits, you were in the aerospace and management consulting field. Correct. So how did you decide to become novelist? You get to flip a coin here. Well, how did I decide? I don't know that it was a decision so much as something that just happened. I, I was successful in engineering primarily one of the reasons is that I really like to write, and most engineers hated writing. So You uh, wrote for journals. Uh, I wrote technical articles, and I did status reports, oh, okay. and I <clears throat> uh, got pretty good at it. Uh, when uh, I lost my day job, it seemed like uh, I should do something that I like to do. Right. And writing just came into, into being for me as a full-time occupation. Mm-hmm. So tell us a bit about your first two books and where they are set. Oh. Or three books, actually. First three books. Well, the first three books, actually, the third one is going to be published in about a month. But the, the books are set in mythology, all three of them. The first book is uh, set in ancient Celtic-Irish mythology. And the second book is set in Northern California mythology, where the characters are romping around inside Mount Shasta. Mm. And uh, There must be a secret entrance I don't know about. <laughs> yes, right. Well, uh, that's another topic, but yes. Yeah, crystal geyser opened it up when they were getting all the water out, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, the third book is uh, what I'm working on now, and uh, it's set in ancient 1,000 years ago in ancient Hawaii. So all three books are in mythologies. Uh, all three books have a theme of good versus evil. Mm-hmm. And uh, the characters migrate from uh, each one of the books. So the same kids are fighting the same evil Abaddon in all three books. Mm-hmm. And wait, you were—you uh, kind of decided you were going to be a writer at a young age, as I recall. Well, n- not at, say, the high school level, but certainly when I started working as an aeronautical engineer— I had to write a number of technical reports. Mm-hmm. Similar process here. Similar yeah. to Charles's. Uh, and when I segued to management consulting, which I did for the last 20-some-odd years of my career, uh, a big part of that, of management consulting, besides doing the, doing the work with the client, is writing up a report. Really, it's a document, a, generally a very large document, reporting your findings. And there's two challenges there. One is to find some things that are significant and offer an action plan forward. The second one is to write the document in a form where it doesn't become what I call a dust sucker. It proves so boring that who the hell wants to read it? And uh, I guess I had a knack for that because I always got complimented on the quality of writing in my uh, professional 
management consultant career. And as I was nearing retirement, I started writing segments of what might be considered a family memoir mm-hmm. when I learned about my father's involvement in the Scottsboro Boys case in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And that knowledge, which I only learned after my father had died, led me to write my first book, Our Southern Home, right. Scottsboro to Montgomery to Birmingham, The Transformation of the South in the 20th Century, quite a mouthful as a title. The book was well-received. It won a silver medal from the Independent Publishers Group in the nonfiction category. And then I decided I wanted to write a book of fiction, and I was unsure what for a while and just played around with ideas and finally settled on murder mystery. And I've written two, as you mentioned, Kiss of Salvation and Touch of Redemption, and am now working on the third one, tentatively titled either Heed the Apocalypse or Heed uh, uh, Revelations. Hmm. We'll see how that title plays out as I continue to work on the book. You have to do some testing to see which not. Which yeah, title see works. which makes most sense. And also, uh, I've decided to write this third one in a somewhat different way, and I have to test whether that concept is going to hold up as I get deeply into the book. And, oh, Kiss of Salvation also won an award from the Independent Publishers Group, a bronze medal in the uh, crime uh, murder mystery category. Cool. Very neat. Thank you. Okay. So let's uh, hear a little bit about Maria's Beads. And do you want to tell how you came to write this story or do you want to just talk about the story first and then we'll get back to that? Well, it's interesting how it came about. So why don't I just mention that? It's not very complicated. Uh, my wife and I were sitting in the hot tub one night just sharing stories, and she, for some reason or other, popped into the uh, relationship that she had with her best friend who lived next door to her in Salinas. Mm-hmm. And um, she discovered that this girl uh, had uh, a kidney disease, and her parents refused medical intervention because they didn't believe in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the outcome of that was uh, pretty sad, but it was such a dramatic story. And had such an impact on her life that uh, I decided it was it was grist for the mill. It was right. something that I wanted to write about. And uh, the more I thought about it, and the more I asked her questions about how they lived during that period of time, um, the more engaged I became in the whole story. And <coughs> um, that's about it. the The story itself. Uh, is about a little girl who is 12 years old and is self-involved like all little girls are at that age and fascinated by beads. And uh, I began writing the story about a girl that found beads in a, in a potato patch in the yard. Uh, <laughs> that that uh, would be, would became a little short story that I quickly threw in the trash because it was just so terrible. But uh, the beads idea stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I stayed with that and that became – kind of the focus of the magical realism. With, uh, and uh, she, when she discovers her friend next door is sick, then she begins doing some things to uh, find out how she's going to get healthy and discovers that her parents and her fa- her own family and the, a, a doctor and the people in the school, no one seemed to be able to help. <clears throat> so ultimately, she finds her own inner strength, mm-hmm. and with that inner strength and 
uh, and the power that she creates just from her personality, she able she's able to save the girl. Right. So it's a definitely... well. She also relies on her friends, and she turns out to have had more friends than she knew. Yes, yes. Uh, her friend, <laughs> the friends just seem to grow. Yes, uh, as it, she becomes more uh, visible. More visible, yes, and so it was a great surprise to her. But she also uh, gains two very personal friends that go with her. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, uh, that particular aspect of the book has led a couple of people to ask me to continue on and write a sequel to it. Mm. So. Uh, during the uh, while she's uh, rummaging around uh, and Selena's looking for help, she comes across a corandera, right? And uh, it's a Mexican shaman, and this lady becomes a mentor for her, and there's an interesting relationship that grows between them. Um, and it turns out that uh, her own family has visited them in the past. In Mexico. yes, it yes. turns out that this, she's a Huichol Indian, and she, and she's and so she's half Huichol Indian. Mm-hmm. The Salinas that you portray, I know, is today because they're using cell phones and other modern devices, right? Yes. And uh, it's an interesting – I don't know if our, our listeners know about Salinas and how it is basically controlled or has been for a long, long time by primarily lettuce growers in the in the region, yes. the Salinas Valley, which is the lettuce bowl of the nation. Right. And um, they employ lots of um, – Workers sometimes, as outlined in your book, you know, on a, on a daily basis, almost, who come in and check in at the you know morning. Do you have something for me to do? And if they don't, then they'll go out and work in the fields. Right, right. And it's, uh, those jobs and, and positions are really important to the people, and they show up very early just mm-hmm. to make sure they're going to get them. Yeah. And yeah. Grandma has a job sometimes at the uh, local taqueria. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Okay. Well, Waits, you're set in a different time and place. and You're set in the, the segregated, the apartheid South. Very the much deep so. Deep South. Yes. The, the uh, first murder mystery, Kiss of Salvation, takes place in 1947. Mm-hmm. And uh, the two protagonists in my books are Joe McGrath, who in Kiss is a, a homicide detective with the Birmingham Police Department. Right. But for the times, he's got a very quite a relative, quite a liberal point of view of the South and the world, and so he's an he's out of step with most of the Birmingham Police Department, especially the racist police chief, Big Bob Watson, mm-hmm. and based on a real police uh, based chief. on uh, some guy named Bull Connor, yeah, and. Uh, and for those who don't know, he was the infamous police commissioner in Birmingham for a number of years, but most infamously for 1963 when Martin Luther King led his protest marches in Birmingham. Uh, the story starts with the murder of a black prostitute in downtown Birmingham, and the chief assigns Joe to try to solve the case, and he has no luck. Because uh, nobody the, saw nothing. Nobody saw nothing. Nobody's talking, especially in the black community, because who would talk to the Birmingham Police Department, right. especially a black? And there's a second murder. Same old, same old. And same victim same, type. No, well, same M.O. of the yeah, murder, yeah. yes. And uh, 
Still no luck. And so Joe goes to the police chief and says, I, we got to have some help, and I want to use Sam Rucker, the only black private eye in Birmingham, because he can work with the black community. Right. Police chief goes ballistic, but finally gives in because he's getting a lot of pressure to get this thing resolved. Uh, just cutting to the end, those two gentlemen team up to solve the murder, and in the process, they become the best of friends. But they alienate the police. They alienate a lot of people, including the guy named Stanford Ramsey, who is the -the behind-the-scenes power broker in Mm -hmm. Birmingham. And uh, then in touch of redemption, we move forward a year to 1948. Well, let's go back a little bit because some of the things that happen in the first book are important in the second book because the contacts that are made are important. That, that is and correct. And the events that were covered up, I guess we'll call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the the disappearance of a, a whorehouse overnight. Yes, <laughs> that uh, the Stanford Ramsey had built in the woods mm-hmm. where he entertained his uh, best friends and those that supported his point of view. With women imported from we, New Orleans. We, women imported locally and from New Orleans. Right. Black women. Right principally, but some whites, and Joe and Sam become aware of this and actually visit the place one night when they're in session. Don't physically go in, but they observe it from afar. And uh, the other thing that turns up in the first book is that we learn that when Joe was 13 years old, his father, who was a lawyer in Montevallo, 30 mm-hmm. miles south of Birmingham, uh, was... Uh, defending a black man who'd been accused of killing a white man. And he was kidnapped, and a few days later he was found murdered in the woods near town. And Joe was really hard on someone that age, but as he got through it, he always vowed at some point, because they never found who did it, he was going to come back and find the men if they were still alive. And that's what happens in Touch of Redemption. Joe has left the police department because of the pressure from the police chief and Stanford Ramsey and formed a private detective agency. And he and Sam are uh, partners, but it's a silent partnership. And on the face of it, Sam works for Joe. It's a silent partnership as far as the community knows, but they have a contract for 50-50 share. That's correct. But – For all intents and purposes, Sam works for Joe, which is not unusual, even in a professional environment, to have a black person working in your office. And maybe at a reasonably high level, but he's not recognized as such. such. And so therein lies the tale in the second book, the uh, going to Montevallo, uh, working on that case, finally resolving it. And a couple of other brutal things happen along the way, as we have to have in murder mysteries, of course. (laughs) And And some history uh, appearing, too, along the way that I was unaware of at first when I picked up the book. And that would be? Well, the the, uh, atom bomb connection in the Army. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. I, I, I actually picked up that idea from an article I read about Werner Braun Braun, and then I realized the connection in time to when I was writing this book, <laughs> and that's when I invented that plot that include von Braun and his cousin, who he made sure got out of Germany with the German rocket scientists, and, but he was a doctor, right. and they get him a job in Alabama when they want von Braun to move his operation to Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville. Right. 
and there's another little subtext down around yeah, that. That's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. We'll get back to a couple others. In okay. A bit. But let's go back to Charles. So Maria, um, being seventh grade, uh, some of the things, the coming of age part of many seventh grade kids is you've got to have the uh, the uh, the classmates who we, I will refer to politely as female um, <laughs> dogs, right? The bitches in the Uh-oh. class. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. <clears throat> and one of them is named Veronica. And she starts – that's actually who we meet first in the book. Yeah, that's it's, how the book starts out. And uh, she basically hates this girl because uh, she's so fluffy and – and flashes her jewelry, and uh, and uh, they, this goes on. But the girl seems to be caring about uh, her friend. Uh, a little Hannah, later on, sick. In the, yeah. So Maria doesn't quite understand uh, how she can be so uh, annoying and at the same time have good feeling or want to take care of her friend. Right. So this goes on for a little while until uh, they're having lunch together, and uh, they discover that they have an affinity for each other. And so friendship develops out of this, uh, what wasn't a friendship to begin with at all. Right. And the two girls uh, conspire actually to do whatever they can to help save the third girl with kidney disease. Now you said you had some excerpts that you wanted to share with our listeners that you. Yeah, there's a, here. just three little parts here that give you a flavor. Of okay, let's do with the first one. And the first one is where we meet uh, her, uh, Hannah, the sick girl. Uh huh. It's a sunny afternoon. My street is busy with kids out of school, preschoolers on trikes riding around, old people sitting on chairs in driveways, and a few moms pushing babies in strollers decorated with bright plastic toys. I stop in front of Hannah's house. Like ours, the front door is one step up and set back from the sidewalk. Their car is gone, and the shades are all pulled down like they don't want visitors. I hesitate. Her father, Mr. Van Dyke, is strange, and he scares me. He's a minister, but not the kind with the church. I decide to knock anyway. When no one comes, I knock again. And Hannah opens the door. A crack. I think she must be better, but then she says, Hi, Maria, in a voice so soft it's hard to hear. And I know she feels terrible. Her light blue eyes are only slightly darker than the faded flower pattern on her pajamas. As the only white blonde-haired girl in our Latino neighborhood, she stands out. Now her pasty skin, pasty skin makes her look even more like a bleached doll. How do you feel, I say? Bad. Your face is swollen. What's wrong? I don't know. Mom told me I have to rest. Can I come in? I don't feel so good. Maybe I'll feel better tomorrow. I hope so, Maria says. I have to lie down before Mom comes home from the store. Oh, there's a click, and I'm staring at the door that just shut. A bad feeling hangs over me like a dark cloud full of rain. That's our introduction to yeah. the sick girl, Hannah. Now, you mentioned earlier that you were thinking of having your <clears throat> Maria discover the beads in the cabbage patch. No, that was an early— uh, Okay, somebody discovered the beads in the yes, cabbage patch. Yes, but uh, you, have, you have her acquire them in a, quite a different way. Yes, that's actually the third piece. No, actually this piece right here. Okay. Maria meets her mysterious old woman. Every Friday, Hannah and I stop after school at the taqueria where Nana works. The owners give us free chartos. This Friday, I'm walking home alone, and I don't want to explain Hannah's absence since Tuesday, so no chorros. A truck rattles by, bringing campesinos home from the Salinas farms. Chilled fall air leaks through my sweater. 
I shiver and fold my arms. That bad cloud hangs in my mind. Ahead, at the corner of Hebron Street, two older boys stand with their hands in their baggy pockets, next to a little old woman leaning on a cane, waiting to cross. She's dressed all in black with a shawl over her head. I hang back so the boys can't tease me. When the light turns green, they slouch across. But the old woman waits, shifting her purple bag with the bead picture of a deer to the other shoulder. When I reach her, I ask her if I can help. She greets me with her eyes like she knows me. Ah, aquí estás. Te estaba esperando. How could she be waiting for me? Maybe she has Alzheimer's and is confused. I'm sure I've never seen her before. She has high cheekbones like Mama, but her skin is a darker brown and her neck has lots of wrinkles. I say, do you know me? Los espíritus le cochen. The spirits know me? Her dark eyes pierce mine like she is looking straight inside me, and the back of my neck tingles as if ants were walking there. I get a cold feeling in my stomach because as weird as this is, she doesn't seem to be crazy. I want, I want to ask her what she's talking about, but the light turns green. She slips her arm in mine. Vamos! We slowly cross Hebron. On the center, on the corner, she reaches in her bag, pulls out a small cloth pouch, and presses it in my hand. Before I can ask why I'm supposed to take care of it, she lets go of my arm. The pouch is warm like it's been in an oven, and suddenly I feel comfortable. My dark cloud is gone. I put the pouch. Uh, I open the pouch. Inside there are blue-green beads that seem to glow. It must be the sunlight doing it. Wow, are these really for me, I ask, but she's gone. Aha. Good. Yeah, that's timing. The last section. So the, you want to read? Let's uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. Yeah, because uh, and you've just heard it. You've not read the book. I have not, it's, and it's it's fascinating. I. You want to know more, don't you? You bet yeah. I do. Yes. So, how much should we give away about this woman and the beads right here? Uh, um, that's a good not very much. Not She's, very much. <laughs> that's a good answer. Yeah, yes. Yeah. She's. Uh, she doesn't get it. She gets the beads and they're warm and they glow. That's right. all she knows. So there's something different about them. Later on, she goes to the library and looks up the beads and what they might be because there's the, she's looking up her birthstone. Yes. And discovers that indeed uh, her birthstone is turquoise. Turquoise, yes. And that's, she decides that's what the beads are yes, made from. So that turns out to have significance later on. Right. Hmm. Yeah, this little section is we meet the family. Okay. Should we do that now, or do you want to come yeah, back to that? Yeah, we can, we we'll can do, do that now. now. Okay. Uh, it's almost dinner time, and Mama and Papa are not home yet. They work every day they can, including Saturdays and Sundays, at the huge farm sheds where they package lettuce for supermarkets. Once, even though it was totally unlikely, I asked for a smartphone, and Mama gave me her hard, staring look. You know better than that, Mahita. We work every day so we can buy enough food, let alone a smartphone. You have a perfectly good cell phone. Mama and Papa hope to have their own house someday. This tiny two-bedroom house belongs to Nana. Most of the houses on our street are run down like Nana's. When I graduate from college, I won't live here. After I finish my homework, I open the pouch on the floor next to our faded blue sofa in the front room where I sleep. The beads are still warm. I roll one around in my hand. It glows a beautiful blue-green color. When I empty the pouch into my hand, all the beads pulse with light and they stay warm. I decide to keep these beads as my secret. Mama and Papa would want to know where they came from. If I told them, they would say I should not have accepted them, and I should give them back. 
Besides, the spirit lady told me to take care of them. I count twenty-one beads back into the pouch, pull the drawstring closed, and hide it under the front room sofa cushions. Nana, I call as I walk into the kitchen. She stands at the sink. Counter, chopping peppers, tomatoes, and chilies so she doesn't, doesn't turn around. ¿Qué pasó, Mahita? Did you have beads when you were a little girl? Yes, made of clay. Did anyone have pretty ones? There was a man who sewed pictures using hundreds of beautiful beads, but that was long, long ago. Before I can ask about the picture, she glances over her shoulder. I thought you had homework. I finished it. With a grimace, she turns, leaning on the counter. Since you've finished, you can set the table for dinner. Your mamma and papa will be home soon. My bones hurt today. I'm going to lie down. So that's where we meet. We find out about the family right. and also meet Nana, who plays a big part in, in uh, Maria's growing up. Takes we also find some other interesting things that, as you read it, had clicked with me. One is she's planning on going to college. Yes. And one of the reasons that she is not as well-received at school as she might be is the she's a, she's a brain, and she gets all A's. In fact, she's asked at one time, do you ever get a B? And she has to think real hard. She says, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's Veronica that asks her that. Yes. And, uh, it's a part of the developing friendship between them. Yeah. Right. The other thing is that she hides the pouch under the couch cushions, and I thought that odd when I read it. Until later on, I discover what? What is that couch to that's, her? That's her bedroom. That's her bedroom, yeah. right? Because it's uh, only a two-room house. That's good, because I wondered that, too. I was thinking, not a good place to hide something. Those <laughs> sofas, cushions get picked up all the time. Right. Yeah. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. See? We're all picking this up. Yeah. There's a lot of reality here that came out of uh, conversations with my wife and her family. They did. They were poor folks that uh, migrated out here and lived in the Salinas Valley, and mm -hmm. they got their work, as I said, you know, piecework, yeah. picking yeah. up crates of lettuce. <clears throat> and uh, so it was a it's a small, small building that they lived in, and there was not enough room for two, everybody to have a bedroom. Right, right. So one of the things that's interesting, you're when we move to uh, to the Touch of Redemption, we have to move into a new office for the the brand new uh, detective agency. Yes, and it's called McGrath Detective Agency. Right. He wanted to use both names, which couldn't get away with that and keep play the game they were playing. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that happens with uh, with Sam. He does play the game. In fact, he plays the game, yes, Massa type of game, frequently as a kind of a joke with, with uh, Joe. He plays that with Joe, but he's very serious yeah. with most others. And one of my readers, and actually an African-American man, a, a reading I had made it interesting. And, and what I was glad to hear, because it's my point of view of the book, too, that uh, Sam is the moral center of the story. Right. Even more so than Joe. Joe's indignant. Joe's indignant, and Joe is uh, less perfect. He has, <laughs> he has to say, say it politely, he has issues that— we read about first and kiss, yeah, and then uh, they proceed in this book. He's a good man, but he's not perfect, and certainly Sam isn't either. We have a couple of imperfections, but nothing uh, equivalent to Joe's. But they work together well. They work very well together. Yeah. Absolutely, that, I, that's I, key. A key point in the book, and uh, some might say, "Well, you're trying to make a." 
statement, Taylor. And I guess <laughs> I'd have to say, yes, I guess I am. Yes. And uh, so be it. And one of the statements is that a, a man like Sam Rucker, who's very intelligent, you know, has been to school, knows what's going on in the world and, and uh, still has to play a role. Yeah. Well, Sam has a criminology degree from the University of Chicago. Right. And the, the background of how that came to pass is described in the book. Right. Yeah. Because he's from Birmingham. His father was a famous minister. One of the parts in the new book, which I found intriguing, is when um, when uh, Joe is not in the office and the insurance man, the man who's coming mm-hmm. to see if that they will work for him as yes. inve- undercover investigators, yes. uh, meets with Sam. And um, Sam kind of plays the, uh, the se- definite second in command. Role. Yes. Yes. But he impresses the man, but then in a subsequent meeting, he says something that puts the man off. Right. And and Joe calls him on it. And he says, I understand why you reacted the way you did, because I have too with Sam, I must admit. Mm-hmm. But you are angry because this black man uh, called you out. And he right. was right. right. And the guy, this guy finally comes around to recognize that and hires them. And respects them for it. And respects them for right. it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And again, people who lived in the South and whatnot may question the validity of that, but I can uh, cite examples of that uh, wrapped around all the racism and apartheid that was going on. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, the uh, intent of the story, time and place and those events and the trouble for African-Americans living there then and for whites that wanted to change it or work with them let's do a break this okay. is word by word conversations with writers on north bay public media krcb fm today's guests waits taylor and charles markey have written novels set in distinctive times and places as he did in his first detective novel kiss of salvation Waits takes us back to the segregated birmingham alabama worlds of detective partners joe mcgrath and sam rucker in touch of redemption while Charles' novel of magical realism, Maria's Bead, features a Latino lettuce-packing family living in present-day Salinas, California. There's more magic and murder in the next half hour, so stay tuned to KRC-BFM. <laughs> so we were talking about uh, the Birmingham South and the the roles that each of the members of the community had to play, and depending on which side of the tracks, literally, mm-hmm. that they were on at the time, uh, how, how, you know, when um, Sam comes to visit, he has to park in the back of, of uh, Joe's house so that no one will see him from the street, for instance. Well, yes. uh, it, yeah, but, but what you're remembering, actually, Joe goes to visit Sam. Joe goes to visit Sam, in fact. Okay, and sorry. Sam tells him, you should park in my garage in the alleyway behind my house because even if – because he lived in a, a black neighborhood. Right. But if the blacks – see you here, they're all going to wonder what the hell's going on and might say the wrong thing to the wrong person. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a game. So this is back to your question. You you said one of the intents in writing the book was that you wanted to show um, the relationship of some people who were more enlightened, shall we say, more forward-thinking than others at the time. Yes. But what was Joe's purpose in this book? Uh in this specific book, in other words, what is his driving force? Is the solving of the murder of his father the most important thing to him? In touch. Yeah. Uh, 
I think that's the leading edge. But then we come to learn in the book that the issues of friendship become a critical issue in how the book is resolved. Mm -hmm. And within that, that friendship is shattered by some of the events that take place. Right. And I, I don't want to go no, any further. No, you don't want to give it away. No, yeah. right. But, uh, yeah, that, that, that I think is, is Joe's central role. And one of the things that he finds out when he goes investigating and discovers all the the cover ups that have been done, the Correct. the the court documents that have been retyped and mm -hmm. information lost, and mm -hmm. and uh, he the strangest part is when he goes and visits that judge, the retired judge who may have Alzheimer's or may not, at least during the time of the visit. I don't think he had Alzheimer's. I think he he had given what he was going through a pretty sharp mind. But he had cancer. Mm -hmm. I don't get into the details of the cancer, except it's life-ending, and he's near life-ending. And uh, he has a come-to-Jesus moment. He's with, looking for with, redemption? With, with Joe. He's looking for redemption. Yeah. As in, later on, we'll learn another meaning of the use of the word mm -hmm. redemption mm -hmm. in the book. Right. Right. Okay. Should we go back to Maria and Salinas? Sure. Maria. Maria and Salinas, back to her town. Yes. Okay. When there's several things that happen to Maria, in a, and it's over the short time of what, a week maybe? It's a couple of weeks. A couple actually, weeks. Yes. Okay. Pretty and, quick. Very quick. And a lot, uh, a lot for her to take into, not the least of which is looking through some old papers that she finds and Discover is a secret. Do we want to tell our listeners about that or keep that private? Um, Your choice. It's a secret. It's a good – it's a, uh, a little bit of a shocker what happens. And uh, the editor, when she came to that point, <laughs> called me up and she said, you really took me by surprise. Yes. And uh, so I think it's, a, it's an important part of the book uh, that I don't want to reveal. Okay. Well, we won't. Let's just say it's an important part of the book. Yes. Yes. But things are not as they seem. Uh, Maria's world is not as, it, as she thought it was. That's right. That's a good way to put it? Yes. Okay. The other thing that happens is there's another uh, girl in the school who's not – another bitch whose name is Berta. Is that correct? Uh, who has some cholo friends or acquaintances, some guys right. who hang out, you know, like the ones on the street corner kind right. of things. With a little threatening actually. Threatening, yes. And uh, – she comes right up in her face when she talks to yes, Maria. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think, of course, there are girls like that in school. Right. Mean girls. Right. And uh, she also uh, appears a little later in the story as things ramp up mm -hmm. with her boyfriend. With her boyfriend yeah. at the front door. Which yeah. was a surprise, yes. Was that a surprise to your editor too? <laughs> no, that one wasn't. <laughs> she was expecting that. Because ah, you put a little, few little kernels of... Yes. Expectation well, for I that want one. some mystery. That's right. Mm -hmm. Right. The frisson as you go through it. Yeah. I think, though, that the book um, overall, it has, as you say, it goes in one direction and then kind of goes off in another direction. But it keeps the same. The beads play yeah. such an important role. The sick neighbor is so important. Yes. And one of the things that happens is how you portray uh, Hannah's family, her specifically her father, who is yeah. a— um, 
very sure of his beliefs and will stand firm against anyone who... He's who, traditional. Yes. Quite traditional. Uh, really upset when the cell phone rings at the dinner table. Right. And uh, and she's... Uh, and there's a little, a little bit that goes on when she uh, is later on dealing with uh, her friend Hannah mm-hmm. and her father doesn't think she should be doing this. And... Uh, well, he thinks that that's their life, their private life, yes. and their religion, and then that we as Catholics, which is what he says, we yes. as Catholics, you know, shouldn't interfere, right? Right, because we right. believe differently. That's just the way of the world. Yes, yes. Um, it wasn't interesting for me to write this story because I'm obviously not Hispanic, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I'm not 12 years old. Right. And you're not a female. <laughs> and I'm not female. Right. So I you would think that I had three counts against me. But actually, uh, having daughters and granddaughters, I have a little bit of an understanding of what's going on with girls at that age, pre-puberty. As much as we can. Yes. yes. Not teenagers yet. Right. There's, there's no guessing what teenagers are going to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's true for boys, too. That's yes. right. Yes, yes, that's yes. actually true. Right. Shall we talk about La Curandera, who is not a brujo, not a witch? And no. she makes sure that everyone understands that by pointing up at the wall. Right. And what is there's up a, on the wall? There's a crucifix on the wall. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's an important part of this because she's a mentor outside the family mm-hmm. and uh, an archetypal kind the of Obi-Wan character. The Obi-Wan Kenobi character. Yes. 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 Yeah, good, uh, good analogy. Um, that was uh, such an interesting discovery. It came out of looking for beads that were interesting, mm-hmm. and uh, the beads led me to uh, Huichol Indians, and the Huichol Indians led me to uh, a curandera. Uh, however, it's, uh, the shaman is not called a curandera in the uh, in the uh, culture of the Huichol Indians. It's a mak makrame. You're going to have to say that again. It's M A R A apostrophe K A R A. K A R A. Okay. And uh, I decided to leave it that way because it was the dead spirits of those shaman who were influencing the beads. Mm. And so I, it's for two names. It really is not uh, specifically. I mean, it was in my mind as I was writing it, but it's not in the book. Right. The, the curandera is in the book. And that makes sense to me because she's Mexican. She's living in a Mexican town. Right. It's 95% Mexican. The other thing is then, are, if you're saying that the ancestors are living in the beads, right? The ancestors are in the beads? The, the, the beads, spirits of the ancestors. Yes, the spirits of the ancestors. And um, in fact, her grandma had uh, remembers the, the deer that we mentioned earlier yes. on the side of the... Uh, of the purse of the uh, right, she knew about that deer. Yes, yes, and so there's some affinity, some connection there. Yes, she isn't just picked out on the street at random. No, I've actually forgotten what the the, de- that the deer is symbolic of something, but I don't remember. A totem. Right now, uh, yes. a totem. It well, yes, yeah. there's something more specific, to more than yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So there's lots of both of your books have one of the things that makes them work so well is the way you have. 
outline the setting and the time, and it's mm. specific. And if you really get into it and you want to click onto Google and do kinds of searches, you can spend days, you know, researching <laughs> all the information that you've gathered yeah. together and what happened in time and place. Well, I think that's right. Listening to Charles talk about his book and his background, the Salinas, the family that worked there and the things they did and so forth, and with my background being from the South right. and whatnot, uh, one they all saw is we write about what we know and what we're comfortable with and, and that, you know, in very different ways, of course. But I think, yes, that's a strong part of our book is time mm-hmm. and place, mm-hmm. both of them. Yeah. Uh, I, I found the voice of the characters in your book really interesting yes. uh, and because it's, it's, a, it's hard to identify, but there are just certain words that yes. were common back in the 1950s yes. that you use in there that state makes the book uh, read authentically. The dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. I tried hard to make the dialogue uh, timely and uh, timely to the different characters right. depending on their station in life, black, white, rich, poor, and so forth. Uh, and I have a can I read a sure, short please. section that demonstrates that? Absolutely. Uh, this is chapter 42, The Storm. This is about oh, almost 50% through the book. Joe and Sam are in this. You know those characters. I've mentioned them. The other two that you need to know about are Raymond, who is a police chief in Montevallo. That's Joe's hometown where they've gone to try to solve the murder of his father years ago. The man who's gone to seed. Gone to seed. And the other character that uh, you'll hear in here is Archie. And Archie is uh, Archie Hamilton is a local rancher, and he's helping Joe and Sam in the work they're doing. The other characters that are mentioned are, are, are uh, described as I go along. Joe McGrath speaking. It's Raymond. A body was reported at 641 this morning by a sharecropper. Shorty Cummins. He's got a 20-year-old son, short stuff. He's a bit touched in the head. He was on his way to one of his fishing holes on Shoal Creek this morning before daybreak. He saw a man's body and skedaddled home like a jackrabbit and told his daddy. I'm headed to Shorty's in a few minutes with Officer Davis. Did Shorty say anything about the body, Joe asked? Only that short stuff said it looked like a bird. We got to check it out. Want to go? Yeah. Will you call Archie Hamilton? He'll want to join us. Okay. He knows where Shorty lives. Thanks. And Raymond, I'm bringing Sam Rucker, the colored guy who works for me. Well, okay. I hope it doesn't bother Shorty. Joe and Sam followed Raymond's police car to Shorty's shack. It was small, three rooms, ten roof and bad shape, three rooms, ten roof and bad shape, tar paper siding. When they got out of the car, a noxious stench hung in the air. Sam motioned toward the outhouse. Archie stood in front of the shack holding his nose. Morning, shorty, short stuff, Archie, Raymond said. This here's Joe McGrath and Officer Jeff Davis. And pointing at Sam, he added, And Sam, Shorty, how's the missus? Shorty looked hard at Raymond. She done passed away a couple of months ago. Oh, God damn it. I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Most folks don't, Shorty said, nodding at Sam, he added. 
What's he doing here? Sam works for Joe. He'll just tag along with us. Short stuff, can you lead us to the body? Short stuff stepped forward, grinning broadly like a star pupil. It saddened Joe to look at the father and son. He could see that a number of short stuff's teeth were missing, and the ones left were dark and rotten. Both wore patched and frayed coveralls. Despite their age difference, they looked alike, rail thin with matting gray hair. Shorty appeared to be a beaten man. Show, Mr. Policeman, y'all follows me, I know the way, Short Stuff said, sounding like a child. The men followed Short Stuff, who grinned and rambled on constantly. The others listened, saying little. After ten minutes, Short Stuff stopped. It'd be after them bushes and trees, this here fishing hole hard to find. It's my hole. Short Stuff pushed the bushes and tree limbs covered in kudzu out of the way. He stepped aside when it cleared. The creek flowed languidly by as the early morning sun cast a golden hue on the treetops. The six men and man-child looked at a scene they would never forget. A tall water oak tree stood next to the creek. Inexplicably, it had been spared the kudzu vine. The man's body hung from one of the tree's upper limbs. His arms had been draped over and tied to a wooden rod, and his feet were tied together, a grotesque depiction of Christ's crucifixion. Joe and Sam stared at the body as a soft breeze blew it back and forth ever so gently in the morning light. The men stood frozen, frozen, staring at the awful tableau. Short Stuff, still grinning, blurted out, See, don't he look like a bird? It's what I tell my papa. Mm-hmm. I meant to mention how I was delighted to have you have the kudzu in there. Kudzu. Yes. You can't write a book about South without kudzu. That's right. <laughs> I hope our listeners know what it is, and if they don't, they should look at it. It is the... The scourge of the South, yes, an imported it, it, uh, weed. It's an imported weed or vine, and uh, it was imported, I think, at China. Is it from China? I believe so, and it's yeah. a food crop, wasn't yes, it? Yes, and yeah. uh, without the realization of what it could do, and it, it, it grows vociferously and covers trees and just anything that's in its path, and it's a constant fight to keep up with it and to keep it controlled. Right. Well, I think you can see the pecking order of the South at this time. We, when I, I, I thought of deliverance when I read this scene. Yes, yes, it's uh, th- that's that's a good comparison. Quite honestly, I never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm, I think it's interesting. In contrast, you basically present uh, the the sleeness of today is that everyone is basically tries to keep things going and patched and clean as best they can. Yes. 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 I stayed pretty much out of uh, dealing with gangs. Mm-hmm. Well, a little close, a little close. Yes. 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 But you're only dealing with seventh graders here. That's right. Although there, are some, there yeah. was some fear, clearly. Yes. So. But I think it's interesting. There's a doctor who comes to visit, who comes to aid the family and check in on Hannah. Yes. And uh, everybody assumes he's going to arrive in a BMW. 
but he doesn't. He he arrives in a, in a clattery old uh, serviceable and gets him from place to place kind of car. Which he says that's the point. That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I don't know. You know, while a young adult novel, I guess, it sounds like a fascinating story. And I bet yeah. a lot of adults enjoy reading it, don't they? Yes, uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, it is actually middle grade. It's aimed at the middle grades, okay. which is roughly 10 to 14. Right. But um, what I find is that the uh, gatekeepers, the parents, the librarians, the uh, grandparents, teachers, they all read the book first mm-hmm. before they let the kids read it. And I've gotten some nice feedback from these people. So, And, of course, the book uh, just uh, won a prize. Actually, won a prize with Redwood Writers. And it also um, is, uh, I'm a finalist in the uh, Colorado Independent Public Association contest. Right. So we'll find out this Sunday what happens. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, my fingers and toes crossed. Yeah. <laughs> fingers and toes. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I should say something about that first book. Um that I wrote just because there it, it was two years worth of research. And you know, I just kind of, you know, blithely say it's uh, ancient Celtic uh, mythology. Mm-hmm. But ancient Celtic mythology was hand down, you know, mouth to hand or whatever you call it. And there was uh, nothing documented uh, until probably thirteen or 1400. So everything that went on before. And that was in Latin. I'm sorry. And that was in Latin. Yes, probably right. in Latin. If there's anything written at all, it was written by the by the monks and by the clerics. Uh, it was fascinating because uh, all the stories uh, are repeti- repetitious and they're all different, but they're all about the same thing. So figuring out what the real uh, mythology is is a bit of a trick. And I was fortunate enough to come across a treatise by Lady uh, Gregory Alexander, mm. who is a... Uh, a colleague of Yeats, and she wrote a treatise on Cuhulin, who is this famous hero, kind of like our Paul Bunyan. And uh, he ripped up trees with his bare hands and defeated entire armies and, you know, did things like that. So he became an important part of the story. But it was just fascinating to me because I grew up in an Irish neighborhood. I was an Irish mother, went to a high school where they, the cry was uh, fighting Irish. Right. So... In San Francisco, there was a big neighborhood that was all Irish. So it was fascinating to me to come across my own background. And so. And, and kind of struck a familiar chord. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So. It's interesting that you do know that Paul Bunyan was made up by an advertising agent. Paul Bunyan is a not a real not a real myth. It's no. a it's an advertisement. Yeah. No, yeah. I didn't know that. That's. Yeah. Well, the, the the Irish character he was talking about was was made up by Saint Patrick. Ah, yes, that's really little known. Yes, did we just remembered that right now. Huh? Yes, but don't you believe a word I just said? <laughs> have you kissed the Blarney Stone? <laughs> no, sir, I have not. Oh well, see, you 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 should. <laughs> have you kissed the Blarney Stone? No, Archer. You said you did Celtic research. I wondered if you laid backwards outside of that tower. No, we didn't get to the south, but my wife did convince me uh, two or three years into the book that I have to go to Ireland before I finish the book so I could – and we did. We took a train through Ulster mm-hmm. up up to uh, Northern Ireland so we could see the area where Cahoolan fought his battles. And right. So, yes. right. Yeah. I happen to be reading a book uh, on Irish history that was presented as 250 radio shows, and they were, they were about five oh, wow. minutes long. It's very interesting. It starts in prehistoric times yes. and comes forward. Yeah. 
and uh, there's all kinds of, you know, how the names changed, for instance, when the, yes. you know, they didn't have Romans ever come to Ireland, but there still was the influence of mm -hmm. the Romans that mm -hmm. kind of, you know, traveled across from mm -hmm. England. Yeah. So, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. All right. So when you talk about the story, the one story that we're going we're gonna to go into a little bit of, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell here and, and kind of about looking at the, the mythology, you know, there is a mythology in your story, in your book, mm -hmm. in this one, the one about the beads. Yes. Based on the, uh, the histories, I guess we'll call it, of the, how the mm -hmm. people grew up in, in Mexico before the people came and, you know, the white men came to invade. And your story has a mythology that is carried on from generation to generation and is, shall we say, kept alive by the traditions and how you behave with the other people you interact with mm -hmm. at the time. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And uh, a couple of readers have, have questioned how I've used Archie. And mm -hmm. how I've set up his ranch and the lifestyle mm -hmm. of the ranch. Mm -hmm. I won't say much about it here. Uh, but I can cite examples of that in the South over the segregated period. They were few and far between. Mm -hmm. But uh, it it may have been stretched a little bit, but not too far. Yeah. Well, there's, there's always the exceptions to the rules. Right? Well, and that's it. And the other thing is... Uh, um, um, the author of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee. Harper Lee said, when asked about the book and challenging some aspects of it, and after she answered a letter about it, she the last line, but please remember, it's only fiction. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and recollection. And recollection, That's of right. course. That's right. So did you go and consult with your wife as you were writing to say, is this how Salinas was? Is this, does this resonate correctly? Or did she get to read a different draft or two? She read a draft. Uh -huh. she, uh, in fact, until I got the book, dra uh, uh, the draft of the whole manuscript, I don't give it to her. I only talk to her about it. Ah. And, uh, but then after she's read a draft, then then she's a reference. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, and that and that works for me. She's she's a good reader. She reads quite a bit, mm -hmm. and so uh, she picks up uh, trends. Actually, an interesting trend that she picked up in the book that I'm currently finishing is uh, a bias that I had built in uh, growing up as a white kid in San Francisco mm -hmm. that I didn't realize I had. And she's she pointed it out just in terms of the fact that I had excluded. Uh, the couple of Hawaiian kids from doing some things with the white kids that were on the island mm -hmm. and without even thinking about it. And so it became a major rewrite <laughs> because I, I needed to treat them all equally. You talk about in your books about how kids that grew up together who were friends, you know, when they were, say, to 10 or 12. Yes. And very close, going fishing and all that together. And Bl then Black some, and white yeah, kids. Black yeah, black and white kids. And then something happened. Well, it's called puberty and it's called becoming of high school age. Mm -hmm. And uh, two of my best f young friends when I lived in a small town, Livingston, Alabama, ages 10, my age is 10 to 14, were African-American kids, mm -hmm. Yank and Willie Jr. And God, I still love them. Uh, they're both passed away as, mm -hmm. as best I know. 
I did leave Livingston after my freshman high school year, so I lost touch with them. Uh, but that's when that dark curtain would have descended between us. Uh, would it? How would it have affected me? I can't answer that question because I wasn't there, because I was still buddies with them at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It would have been hard as a youngster to go against the grain of the local customs and existing mores. But that's what it was. Yeah. And so what I put in Touch of Redemption and Kiss is quite realistic in that regard. Right. Mm-hmm. Huh. So, Somewhat your own redemption. Huh? Yes, it is. Uh, is. Listening to Charles talk about his wife's comments about his book, I was, I'm was i in a writer's group of three, and the other two are women. Mm-hmm. And they read all of Kiss, most of Kiss as I went through it, and all of Touch. We'd get together monthly yeah. and share chapters. And it was great having their perspective, a woman's perspective, on some of the scenes and some of the writing because they see things and understand things differently. And it helped me immensely, I think. They keep my feet to the fire. <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> they don't give me because girls get as just much play as boys do. That's yes, right. That's right. And, and well, they should. You have been listening to Word by Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's guests, Charles Markey and Waits Taylor, have talked about their novels set in distinctive times and places. Charles' novel, Magical Realism, Maria's Beads, features a Latino lettuce-packing family living in present-day Salinas, California, while Waits revisits the locale from his first detective novel, Kiss of Salvation, the segregated Birmingham, Alabama worlds of detective partners Joe McGrath, and Sam Rucker in his latest Touch of Redemption. Before we sign off, I want to let listeners know that June's word-by-word guest, Maya Kobabe, has been nominated for an Ignatz Award as the promising new talent for her Tom O'Bedlam comic. The Ignatz, in case you don't know, is named after George Harriman's brick-wielding mouse from his long-running <laughs> comic strip Crazy Cat and recognizes exceptional work that challenges popular notions of what comics can achieve, both as an art form and a means of personal expression. Our studio engineer for today's broadcast has been Anthony Garcia. Our station manager is Sean Knight. Our office coordinator, Wendy Nicholson, and our theme music by Bill Conti. And I am your host, Gil Manser. We invite you to join us for our next Word by Word show from 4 to 5, Sunday afternoon, September 11th. Until then, here's a thought from the Corandera, featured in Maria's Beads. It is all right not to understand. Not understanding is the first step in knowing. <laughs>